Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. episode of The Nuanced Life. We are so excited about today's show. We're going to share some listener feedback and have a small discussion about the Golden Globes, about some of the more fun things like the dresses that we did not cover on Pantsuit Politics. Um, We are also going to dive into part two of 55 of our series on stuff. We are not actually going to go to 55. I just really like that joke and I'm going to keep making it because I really could talk about stuff for that long. And then in the final block of the show, we will share something that inspired us of late. I want to talk about Susan's email in response to the conversation we had about dating last week. It was so good. I want to read the whole email. I want to have Susan on and talk about it forever. But I won't do that. I will just cover some of the, I think, really salient points. The first of which is that women are capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time. (laughs) Susan basically said that we always have this assumption that women have to focus on their careers or on their families. And she says, actually, nope. I was open to dating relationships all through college, med school, residency, and fellowship. Many of my fellow students, residents, and fellow um, and fellows met and married during training. Relationships and career are not mutually exclusive, as you both well know. That is true and important and cannot be stated enough. It's just a false binary. It's just this idea that I like what you say, which maybe it is a binary, and maybe we only have the capacity to really focus on one at a time. But that's okay, because then you focus on the other, and then it goes in waves. And then you are then you can really be dialed in, and you reconnect. My husband and I always call this a renaissance of our love. Like, we always have these moments in time where it's just like, we're just really feeling each other. We're, like, loving each other. We're super snuggly. We think the other person is the funniest person we've ever met. Other times, we don't feel that way, but that's okay, because a renaissance will roll around again eventually. You know, that is one of the things that I think is the most interesting about marriage, how it is not at all static. Mm -mm. And I think that maybe some of us have this perception walking in, some of us meaning a young Beth Silvers, that marriage (laughs) is going to be a little bit more static. And it's not. And I think that it's kind of, it becomes like an occasion for joy when you realize that this is a really dynamic relationship that I'm in. And there are times when I am going to feel very close to the way I felt when we first met. And there are times when I'm not. And we're going to feel like business partners who are working our tails off to take care of our house and our children. And you got to 
put some effort into making sure that those waves go in a direction that are that's healthy for both of you. Um, but absolutely, like I think the idea that you have to take years of your life to devote to a relationship or a career is pretty silly. It's more like days and weeks mm-hmm. and totally sometimes agree. hours. Susan also talked about how what she didn't like in the Boys on the Side article that we talked about last time is that this sense of other people being disposable. And she said that she totally agrees that relationships don't define your worth, but we shouldn't treat each other like you're here just to meet my needs. She talked about her experiences with people ghosting, like you're having these interactions and suddenly someone's just gone and they're not responding to your text messages or calls. I cannot imagine having that experience. I had that experience actually with someone who cleaned our house. She cleaned our house for over two years. We loved her. I was Facebook friends with her. Like I knew a lot about her life, I thought. And suddenly she just didn't show up one day and she never returned a call or email. Like we were worried something happened to her. But then through Facebook, I saw that she was just living her life. But it was like incredibly hurtful from someone that I didn't have an intimate connection with. So I can't imagine what that would be like on a date. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the conversation we had on um, pantsuit politics with couples in bipartisan relationships where one person is a member of the opposite party than the other partner. And um, we talked to my dear friends from law school, Leslie and Taylor, and they were talking about how because of their the relationship began in law school, there was a lot of sort of, we're not sure if this would work romantically, but we're still around each other and we're still friends. And it gave the relationship the chance to grow. But like if they'd just been on a dating app and they'd met and they had a conversation about abortion, they would like swipe left and moved on and never married each other. So not these three beautiful children in a great relationship. So I, I, it really reminded me of that, of like when you treat people just like a checklist, you miss these opportunities to really grow and gain self-awareness and um, engage with another human being in a very complex and sometimes uncomfortable way that is beautiful. There is a lot to just being around someone. Mm-hmm. As I am seeing now, being at home every day with my husband, who also works from home. Oh, my God. I and, forgot about that. And it's been really good, actually. I think it has propelled me more back into one of those, oh, we're really feeling each other places. Because I've forgotten how good we are at just being around each other. We don't get a lot of that time now because we're just around our children, mm-hmm. right? And and our girls are both at an age where they are constantly asking for attention, And, you know, I can't go five minutes without, mom, look at this. Look what I made. Look what I said. Mom, did you hear me? And it's it's fine and good, and we try to be responsive to it. But during the day now when they're both doing their things in life and we're both working, we're just around, and we're not having these intense discussions. And I have kind of forgotten or maybe taken for granted how good we are at that for each other. And I can see how when you are dating – in the era of swipe left and right, you don't really get to test drive that. There's, it seems like there's a lot of pressure on every interaction. I think we do that. And I think we do that beyond marriage and dating and just our community relationships. I was thinking about the other day that we had this couple over for um, dinner on Friday night. I met this woman through work. I really, really loved her. I think she's just, like, the coolest, most wonderful person. So we've been trying to have her and her husband over forever. So they came over. They they brought their kids. It was really fun. Whenever I have 
even my dearest friends over um, for dinner parties, and we have like great conversations. There's always this always this moment I have when people leave, and I don't. I think I wonder if people will be shocked to hear this because I'm such an extrovert and I um, have a lot of confidence and portray a lot of confidence. There's always this moment afterwards where I'm like, those people definitely hate me now. I definitely said X, Y, and Z that was rude or dismissive, and they are definitely like driving home in their cars thinking about what a hateful witch I am. Like I do it every time, even with people I know love me and are like my dear friends. And I think it's just a general spotlight effect that I'm, you know, obsessing what I said. They're probably doing the same thing. But I just thought like if I did not have my husband who loves me and good friends who love me and all these sort of good foundation and confidence in myself and like sort of tools to deal with that like I would just stop engaging I would just be like this is too hard this is anxiety ridden this is makes me question myself I don't like it I'm gonna stop and I know people in my life the reason I say that is because I know people in my life who have done that who like you can see they the difficulty of engaging is is hard and it is hard emotional work in a lot of ways so they just stop and I think there's a there's a part of our culture that encourages that that implies that everything should be easy and every interaction should make you happy and there should never be some hard vulnerability involved. And I think we just have to push back against that. Like bumping in, I say this all the time, bumping into human beings is hard, but it's good. It rubs your rough edges off. And as Americans, I think some of us, all of us, most of us, including myself, have some rough edges that need to be rubbed off. And I think with dating, I think the way that the, that that article talked about dating, I can see where Susan sort of saw that theme. I agree. I want to tell you that I also have those moments after every time I'm around other people. Not the sort of they hate me because I said this or that. More, I my theme is they must be so disappointed. Like, especially people who haven't, who, who know me through maybe the podcast or some other context. I'm always afraid they're going to walk away saying like, God, she's boring. Because it is a lot of energy for me. And unless I'm sort of in a role with someone, like if I'm having a one-on-one conversation where I'm going to help you solve a problem or look at the world and yourself a little differently, those are the conversations where I really feel myself energized and I feel like I sort of thrive in those discussions. Just a regular old social interaction, I suck at it and I'm super boring. And I do always have that moment of like, these people are not going to be interested in me anymore. They're going to stop listening to the podcast. They're going to be like, what is the deal with this woman? So I think we all have whatever your thing is. I think we all do that where we come back to it. And Susan's point in kind of tying it back to this article is like we we don't uh, our expectations of ourselves and other and each other are just too high. Yeah. Yeah. And it's too high. Well, and here's the thing. I laughed and then I immediately feared it was too dismissively. See, I'm doing it right now. Because the idea that he would be born is so outrageous to me personally. But it's so interesting to me. Like, you know, the the point of rubbing up against each other and bumping up against each other and confronting these voices in our head is to be self-aware of like, okay, well, I'm clearly fueled by a fear of rejection. Let's talk about that, Sarah. Let's go to therapy about that. Let's do some journaling. And you are clearly fueled by a fear of, like, not bringing value. Um, it seems like I'm not, I don't hope I'm, I'm armchair psychology, like, super much right now. But, like, you. No, that's 100% accurate. Yeah, like, you really feel like, <laughs> you feel like you've got to just, like, bring the value every time, which I think is so fascinating. Um, like, we just, we need to, like, give each other some grace. Like I said, a little journaling, probably not going to hurt. I love to journal. 
But I think the the value of doing this with each other, talking about it, my friend Annie has this brilliant parasite theory that the problem is not these voices. The problem is if we never express them and say, hey, this is what I'm worried about every time somebody leaves my house. So the other person can go like, oh, silly. In the light of day, that parasite is not right. And your thing about being born, I can laugh and be like, that's not even a parasite. That's silly. What are you talking about? Like, Putting it out there and working through this is how we get better, not just refusing to bump into each other. Like, that's not the answer, y'all. Agreed. So Susan's last point is that other people's needs matter and that we probably need to Mm -hmm. re-examine our own needs. And I wanted to directly read from her email about this. The concept of fake boyfriends was particularly disturbing to me. Those sub-marriage boyfriends are still human beings with feelings Mm. who may or may not have the same sub-marriage viewpoint as the woman who is looking at them as a temporary placeholder. And if women really don't need a man, then why on earth bother with these subpar relationships at all? Why not enjoy social time with friends and in groups instead of expending any energy with someone they see is so beneath them? It seems a bit backwards to me. There is probably something here to say about the inappropriate position of sex in our culture and the insistence that that specific kind of physical intimacy is a need that must be met. And that conversation probably leads to me too in some capacity, but I'll leave it for another time, (laughs) which I feel like might be now. (laughs) Um, Because I think that there is a lot to unpack there. And I have, I mean, I have kind of mixed feelings because I do think that physical intimacy is really important and is kind of a basic human need that we need to meet. The problem, I think, is that we as men and women, and I'm speaking in super generalized terms, recognizing that there are a million exceptions and not meaning to be exclusive of anyone when I say this. I think generally speaking, we view the ingredients to that intimacy so differently. And then when you put that difference into a power structure, that's where it becomes really problematic. But if we could strip away that power structure and talk about the different ingredients that comprise that intimacy, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, this is why I find conversations with my um, friends and countrymen in the LGBTQ community so fascinating and illuminating for the rest of us because you do remove that power structure in a lesbian or gay relationship. And like one of my favorite episodes of the Esther Perel show is when she talks to two lesbians who are having the same problem with the like one partner stays at home, one partner works. And it was like so fascinating to think about this through the lens in which we're not dealing with all the like power structure of men, male primary breadwinner situation. So, so much to learn there, I think. But again, probably a full episode. Also, probably would need to include some LGBTQ community members. Right. And I think that something that I've learned from listening to Esther Perel, who is very open about the fact that we need to touch each other. I mean, she often, if you listen to all of the the Where Should We Begin podcast, she often tells people to shut up and touch each other. She'll say, like, you don't have the language for this. But your body does. Your body Mm. is your first and best language, so use it. So I think Susan is right in the sense of we need to examine our own needs. What do we really need? Do I need a fake boyfriend? Do I need physical intimacy? What are the ingredients to that physical intimacy that actually make it rewarding for me? And what's on the other side of this equation? Like, where is the other person on all these things? And are we equally matched in what we're seeking from one another? I don't think, though, that it's wrong to acknowledge that I might not need a relationship, but I still need those 
those moments of intimacy with someone else. Yeah. Because I think we do. So I wanted to share one of um, super helpful insight from Marjorie, one of our amazing longtime listeners who moved to Denmark. So it's pronounced hugali. That's the cozy um, feeling approach that the Nordic countries take to winter, which I'm trying to replicate in my own life. And I did share some of the photos because people asked about my winter decorations. So I have lights, a lot of twinkle lights and um, snowflakes and white decorations around my house to um, embrace and get excited by winter. Although Mother Nature, if you could send me some snow to Western Kentucky, that would really help. Thanks. Love, Sarah. I promised on the last episode not to talk about doing Whole30, but then Jane, who's one of our longtime Pansy Politics listeners, asked me to talk about it. So here's a quick little update on my resolutions. This is, it's hard for me to say like what is affecting me because I changed so many variables in my life at one time. Have you killed all the things yet? If you had that day, how many days are you? Yes, at? I've killed all the things. Oh, so I'm a weekend. I have... I basically just started with killing all the things. I started with here is what you are allowed to eat on Whole30 and what you are not. So I didn't ramp up in any way. I also eliminated. I think that's the power of the Whole30, though. I'll be honest. I also eliminated a commute. So on a good day, I was spending 90 minutes in my car and I've taken that out of my life. Mm. Um, I've added an exercise routine. Like I've added some journaling. I've just changed everything, right? I've taken my work life into a totally different place. So I'm only a weekend. I'm still getting my legs under me. And here are my conclusions so far. First of all, I have a question. Are you still sick? Am I what? Are you still sick? I am not still sick. Thank goodness. Knock on something. I believe that all variations of the flu have run through my family at some point in the last five weeks, and I hope to God that we are done with it. Here are my conclusions so far. Number one, I think I am enjoying the Whole30 because I cook. Yeah. I think if I didn't cook or have someone in my house who loved to cook, this would be hell on earth. Yes, absolutely. But I think it's fun for me to learn new recipes and to learn, oh, I can use this instead of that or I can do it this way. So, so far, it's good. I think the food has been delicious. Um, I'm not – I had some caffeine headaches. But other Mm. than that, I'm doing pretty well. Oh, I drink coffee. You're allowed to drink coffee, right? Yeah. I just mostly like sweet beverages. And so Uh. all of the forms – or artificially sweetened beverages. And I'm not doing the artificial stuff either. So – Um, that took me a couple of days, but I'm happy to have shaken that. And I want to never go back because it is miserable when you're coming Mm -hmm. off of it. I also feel like I am coming to understand some of the mommy wars in a new way. Mm, Tell me more. So I think there is this constant sense of women who work outside the home thinking, That if you do not work outside of the home, you must have all kinds of time and no understanding of what women who are working outside the home are going through and um, be able to spend like half your day at the gym and the other half putting on makeup and, you know, just have like this fantasy life. Right. And then I think that women who work within the home feel like women who have other jobs cannot appreciate the stress of being with your children all day long, cannot understand how how busy it is to actually run a household well, and can't understand all the pressure that they feel. So these two groups that like just feel like no one gets their experience. And I feel like I'm getting a little peek into both. I am working at home during the day, and my children are still going somewhere else, so I don't have the total stay-at-home mom perspective. 
But it's been striking to me because I will admit, I did think, like, I'm going to have so much time. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, like, both true and false because I don't feel like I have any more time, really. But that's because I am filling that time with different things. Mm -hmm. There is truly no way that I would have been able to do the Whole30 successfully with the life I had in December. Oh, yeah. For sure. Like, cooking my food... Grocery shopping, meal planning, all of those things just, I, I personally, I'm sure lots of women who work outside the home are capable of doing those things with my job and the podcast and the other things that I chose to make priorities. I was never able to make caring for myself at that level a priority. I was never able to make a consistent exercise routine a priority. I was never able to make journaling a priority. I was never able to make keeping stuff in my home look like thoughtful humans live here a priority. So now I'm making all those things a priority. I'm super busy. Our work life is really busy. You know, you and I could spend, there could be five of us and we would still have work to do on the things that we're trying to do. So I think I'm just starting to get some of that tension. I don't know if I've processed it enough to be able to articulate it as fully as I'd like to be able to at some point, but I'm starting to see why each side of that equation believes what they believe about the other and sort of the truth in both perspectives, the way we try to do with political issues on fancy politics. Well, I think what you're doing, which people is it's very difficult for people to do is the acknowledgement that like sometimes I didn't get it quite right. People just it's so hard. I get it. No one wants to say like I made the wrong choice. I screwed this up. I wasn't I didn't have my priorities in right. And you're not saying it that harshly, but I'm just saying like sometimes we have to when we when we explore something from a different perspective, we have to say, well, here's what I was missing from my other perspective. But it's very difficult for people to do that. And I don't think it's because it's a character flush. It's basic human psychology. Um, and I think that happens so often in the quote unquote mommy wars that there's just, there's so, there's such sensitivity. There's no willing, willingness for open, honest self-examination. I feel like I've walked this really tight rope. I've never worked full time with children. So let me just be abundantly clear about that. I've never worked 40 hours a week and dropped my children off for full-time daycare. Um, although that is most likely going to change very, probably very soon, but um, I've always, when I first had Griffin, there was about six months where I really didn't do anything. At first I was taking the bar, um, studying for the bar, but then there was a six month period before I started teaching at a local community college that I was a pure and total stay at home mom of one child. And it was both really easy and really hard at the same time. Both things can be true. I find myself longing for that time period when I there just wasn't a lot of things taking up my processing power. You know, like there I could do something and complete it and sleep easy at night, right? Whereas now that's that's just never going to be reality. I have too many kids, I got too many jobs, I got too many responsibilities. And that's fine. I'm trying to make my peace with that. Um so there it, it was a different sort of balance. Um, when I was a pure stay-at-home mom, but I immediately started adding work to my life because I was not happy in that scenario. I needed more things to do. Um, and what I always say, people, is it's that we, we again, we create this f- false binary in which we're all home or all in. And what I am here as to, to be a disciple for is like a really nice mix. My kids, for the longest time, up until really now, 
um, have been at some mix of like 10 to 20 hours a week and I would work like a part-time schedule and it was perfect. I didn't feel taxed at work. I got to do work I loved. It didn't, I didn't feel like I was, I could make a home I loved. Um, Now I've increasingly dropped off things I used to spend a whole lot of time on like birthday parties, but um, I could just do these things and really enjoy them and pour some energy into them and then feel like I was all in with my kids feeling like I was spending a lot of time with them and not missing anything. It's like this really beautiful mix that I wish was more available to um, women and men at all levels of society and um, stages of parenting. But I totally agree about the Whole30. I did the Whole30 in 2013. My husband cooks. He was full in on the Whole30. Absolutely no way I could have done it otherwise. It was a very intense experiment. It changed a lot of how I ate permanently, but I will not be doing it again. P.S. <laughs> That right mix of things is so hard, and it's something I've just been working on a section of our book about how the 40-hour work week makes it so difficult to climb out of poverty. Mm. And I think that it's just making everything harder than it needs to be. Honestly, if more people could do what we're trying to do now, find that mix, and I recognize that we're lucky to be able to do that, but it shouldn't be that way, right? right? We should all have more choices about... Are those 90 minutes in the car contributing to my employer in a way that makes them worth it? Or would I be worth more to both my employer and myself if I worked here most yeah. time? Most well, and it's time. just so silly. It's uh, The 40 hours a week, to me, it's sort of like uh, – it reminds me of Morgan Spurlock's show 30 Days when he did minimum wage. And I think this is just, this is sort of true in the 40-hour work week, even if you're making a living wage, which is there's just no room for error. There's no room for a chronic illness. There's no room for a mental health problem. There's no room for addiction. There's no room. There's just no capacity to adapt and and for that contraction and expansion, depending on what area of your life really needs your attention. You're working 40 hours a week. There's just not time. There's no time to say, I really need to dedicate some time to my self-care because I have this chronic illness or I really need to dedicate time to my spouse because they're having a mental health problem or I really need to dedicate time to my child because they have a learning disability and I need to see in what ways we can adapt. Like the the problem solving I love to do in my life when you call me a resource Sherpa, this idea of where's the problem, how can we shift things around, what parts of our life aren't working because our lives are constantly changing because they're filled with human beings who are constantly changing. Just, just it seems to me like in a 40-hour work week, there's just no time for that. There's no mental capacity, and especially when you, walk, when, you, when you cover it on top with the extraordinary schedules pe- many, many, many people's children's, children have after school There's like or after work. There's like really there's just no time to sit and take a beat and a breath and think what's not working in my life and what is. This is what I've told people about our experience for the last 10 years, which has been two of us working full time and really more than full time because we are always glued to our phones and never really off. There is no I just was writing about how I feel like I've spent the last 10 years in a culture where nine to five is for the weak and lazy. (laughs) Um, So so two people with those kinds of jobs, we're in an area where we have no family. Our days are like Jenga. Mm. We have it figured out. We have it stacked up. But if you move the wrong piece, it is all over because we don't have backup childcare. You know, we like we just have all these things that we have carefully figured out with the resources that we have. And we have really good resources like this isn't 
pitiful me. Lots of people are living with a much harder Jenga tower than we are. Mm-hmm. And if you move one piece, it's all over. And I feel like that's kind of the American experience right now for the vast majority of us. And it's a big reason that for me, I just I did not want to live that way anymore. Uh, before we move on, we do want to take a moment and talk about the Golden Globes, particularly the black dress attire. The black dresses were in um, solidarity with the Me Too Times Up moment. So we talked a lot about the politics of the award show. I Background, I love award shows. I live tweeted it. Um, Beth does not love award shows. I love particularly political <laughs> award shows. So I was all about the somber Golden Globes in which we were talking about the Me Too movement. But I thought the black dress situation... Because, listen, I don't think there's anything wrong talking about fashion. There was a really good article I shared from Vox where they interviewed um, the Go Fug Yourself girls. Do you ever read Go Fug Yourself, Beth? I don't. Oh, it's so good. We were obsessed with it in law school. That's when I read all the time. They are the smartest, most wonderful writers about fashion and celebrity, except for Anne Helen Peterson, obviously, who's the queen of all celebrity writing. But they talked about, like, there's nothing wrong with liking fashion, you know, Men don't get dinged for liking sports. You know, like, it's it's a fine thing to like. Many men like it. So I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about their dresses. I don't think that objectifies the women of Hollywood in any way. But I thought the black dress situation made for such a much more interesting fashion moment in a way because you had to do so- – color is such an easy way to make an impact. And when that is taken off your palette of, of tools – um, you have to use other things. So there was like truly phenomenal jewelry, just crazy awesome diamonds. Maggie Gyllenhaal had these long earrings that almost hung down to her collarbone that were pearls. There was lots of like giant green emeralds. Oprah was sporting some like really amazing eyeglasses. And then there was also some really beautiful texture. Like there's lots of velvet, which I was really feeling. There was um, and just really impeccable. I'm stealing this this observation from Tom and Lorenzo, who are wonderful fashion writers and wrote. I fell in love with them because they used to write up all the wardrobe um, and costumes in Mad Men. It's called Mad Style. Phenomenal. If you've been watching Mad, Mad Men on Netflix at any point, go through and read each, every one of those after an episode. Anyway, they were saying, like, the, the, the theme of the night was impeccable fit. Like, everybody's dresses were just perfect. Oh, it was good stuff. So I've only seen Golden Globe coverage, and I did. That's really the best way to see the dresses, though, for real, though. Yeah, and I did see the entirety of Oprah's speech. I want to talk about Oprah's dress for a second and how much I loved it. It was so pretty. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was classy. I thought it was timeless. I loved her hair. I loved that she wore glasses. I thought that was an amazing fashion statement on its own. I loved seeing the diversity of body types in the audience among women, and I felt like the kind of black uniform made that even more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I liked, I mean, I don't want to use the word modesty as though it's wrong to not be modest, because I love some of the deep V dresses, okay? Like, I am not against that. You do you. I liked seeing the space for a whole bunch of different kinds of fashion mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of kind of dresses. It it seemed like maybe everybody actually wore what they were comfortable in. There was a few. Uh, listen, I think the modesty thing was purposeful and I think it was more impactful. And I think those dresses were much more beautiful. Not because I like modesty. I just think that there was something about the vibe, like the, like Kate Hudson wore like a dress that was basically her and undies. And so did Catherine Zeta Jones. And they just felt out, out of place. Not because there weren't people who were exposing, 
skin. There was, but it was just like the way the way it was done. Like it just didn't fit because cult- fashion is an expression of a cultural moment as much as anything else. And I just thought they missed the mark. But let me tell you my favorite dress: Natalie Portman, velvet, impeccably cut, pretty modest, so. Beautiful. So beautiful. I was really feeling the velvet last night. Really feeling it. So gorgeous. I liked Elizabeth Moss's dress a lot. I thought the like the jeweled collar was very cute and I thought the mm-hmm. cut of it was nice. And it just it again, it kind of looked like how I think of her. Um when I got married, instead of choosing a bridesmaid dress, I just told everybody in the wedding to wear a black dress that they liked. Mm. And everybody looked so great because they looked like themselves, you know. And I look at my pictures now and they don't look like they're from an era because everybody's just wearing these classic little black dresses, you know. I just think it's a good look. I totally embrace the black dress. We were feeling it last night, Golden Globes. Good job. All right. Next up, we are going to talk about stuff. This is, again, part two of 55. Um, And we are really excited to further explore this topic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sarah, I think that this is your favorite topic. Absolutely. And there are lots of ways that we could approach this discussion. I am trying to become... A convert to your philosophy on stuff. I think I've maybe always been there. I just haven't executed on it. We spent a lot of time this weekend cleaning and organizing. I feel like I'm going to take the next probably two years to just go through every aspect of my house Mm -hmm. to get it the way that Chad and I today want it versus the way that the Chad and Beth who moved into this house wanted it. Here is the ultimate conclusion of my weekend where so we had both of our daughters here. Jane is almost seven. Ellen is two. They are a little bit um, high maintenance and like they're wonderful <laughs> kids and very imaginative, but they want you to experience everything that they've done. So as I'm cleaning and organizing and trying to entertain them, my conclusion is that toys are worthless. <laughs> I think toys are 100% worthless because the things that they like to play with are Legos, blocks, crafts. But any kind of toy that plays back with you, you know, like an electronic something that talks or walks or does a thing, after the first time they use it, they have no interest in it whatsoever. And all that stuff takes up so much room in our Mm -hmm. house. It drives me crazy. I'm just very committed to, like, not buying that kind of toy anymore. Yeah, it is. It's very true, particularly about any sort of operated – like, I have so many of the – well, actually, that's not true. We don't have a ton of those. I'm very committed. I, I, I try to be very committed to this sort of Montessori approach. So toys you have to to participate with, like to, to use and to make. So we have a lot of costumes. We have um, a lot of magnetiles and Legos and um, 
So we have some magnetic wooden blocks that are very popular. We have just plain old wooden blocks. So we have a lot of those um, type of toys. I struggle because kids seem to like to collect. That seems to have some sort of drive. But I don't really want to step on. But at the same time, like, I don't want to put up, pick up Pokemon cards anymore. So I'm really struggling with that, the give and take between the, like, they want to collect things and they're trying to explore their relationship with objects. But we do, we have that struggle. That Luckily, my kids aren't, like, the only sort of electronic toys they want are, like, video game consoles, which clearly they're using almost more than any other toy. The thing that gets the most use um, in our play world are costumes and weapons. We had a lot of, like, Minecraft swords and all the things. We got three boys, and Griffin was not as much into that, so I don't want to say that, like, a stereotyped way, but Amos is super into it. He loves that he watches Power Rangers. He's going to save the world. He's, like, totally feeling it. So um, it's really interesting to watch the way that kids interact with toys, and that is by far the most difficult part of Marie. Um Although, so let me, we're going to talk a little bit about Marie today. I'm super excited. So have you read the book, Beth? I have not read the book. Okay, you got to read the book, uh, first of all. Everybody should read the book. Here's why I think she's so brilliant. And then I'll talk about Conmarine toys, which is dif- difficult. So I'm a person who's always loved organization, and she she is this person. So she has always been f- interested and fascinated in organization, as have I. So, like, when I was a kid, and I think a lot of this comes because I was an only child and had total control over my environment, which was, like, twice a year, I would go through every single thing in my room, literally everything, and decide, like, do I want to keep this? Do I want to touch it? Like, do I want to get rid of it? Like, all these things. And so... She goes, like, sort of bit by bit all the traditional advice about organizing, which is because this is a subject that interests me. I have read all of it. Sort of the, like, do a little bit every day or um, do it all at once or turn all your hangers around backwards and then turn it around if you wear it. Like, I mean, she just goes kind of, like, bit by bit through all these pieces of advice and is like, this is why it's stupid and this is why it doesn't work. And what she did for the first time, and I think why her book has been such a viral success, is she spoke in a way, and it is a little kooky. I'm not trying to lie to you. There's a little, some of it feels kooky. But, like, very, like, the emotional energy of the stuff. Like, I was telling Beth afterwards last week when we ended up in a conversation about loneliness after I was was like, that was weird. And then I'm like, no, wait, that was not weird. Loneliness is a perfectly acceptable conclusion to come to about stuff. Of course we ended up with loneliness, right? I think that's right. And as you were talking about the kookiness, I think that might be honesty more than kookiness. Exactly. I saw this really interesting video, and I'll find it and put it in the show notes, about how kids learn to attach to stuff, like, from the womb. Like, the minute they come into this world, the the way their brain responds to something where when you teach them this is yours, Mm. it is – it's almost instant that we have this – craving for things that are ours and that help assert our place in the world. And so I think that when you think about especially collecting and hoarding and kind of the extreme ways that stuff manifests in our lives, it's all emotional. It's 100% emotional. I mean, there's nothing economic about it. I mean, I literally gave them a lovey from the moment they were born and was like, this is yours. This is to comfort yourself at night. (laughs) I can't then turn around and be like, throw out your stuff, you big babies. You know, like I teach them to do this. But I think what she is so brilliant at is saying, that's okay. It's okay that we do that. Let's talk about why we do it. And let's 
manifested in a healthy way. So the biggest, most important lesson I took from that book and realized about myself is she talks. So the big, the big um, shtick in the life changing magic of tidying up is that she tells you to hold every item in your home, in your hands and say to yourself, does this item bring me joy? And to feel your reaction to the energy of the, of the item. And I swear to you, I know it sounds woo-woo, but I've been doing Conmarie for so long. Like I can feel, literally feel a pull from whatever I'm holding, like whether it pulls in towards me or it's trying to get away from me. Like I can feel it. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. And what she says in the book is, look, like everything in our lives is here to teach us a lesson, including our stuff. And every person that comes into your life is not meant to be your best friend. And every item that comes into your life is not meant to stay in your life forever and be used to its maximum capacity. I think I had this idea of stuff in my mind that it was like zoning. Like I had to put every single item, every single shirt, every single office supply to its highest and best use. If I did not wear the shirt till it wore out and had holes on it, and if I did not use the stationery, every single bit of it, like I was being wasteful. And it was like a little micro failure. I swear that's how I felt. Like every, if I got rid of something and said, I bought that, it was a mistake, or somebody gave me that, and I don't think I'm ever going to use it. Or maybe I might use it at one time, but it doesn't need to be in my house anymore. Like, it felt like a little micro failure. Like, I was saying, I did not put this item to its highest and best use, and I failed. And she was, the I, I, what helped me from that book is her saying, no, it taught you that you don't need that kind of shirt, or you don't like that kind of color, or you thought that that would be a, um, applicable in your life, and it wasn't. And that was a helpful lesson. Say thank you and let it go. Like, it taught you something. That's enough. It taught you you don't need it. If that if that's all it taught you, that's enough. Just like people. Some people teach you things, and they're not all, I'm going to be your best friend. So say thank you and let it go. And that was hugely impactful for me in my relationship with stuff. And just realizing, like, not everything that comes into my life do I have to acquire and make sure I use it to its highest and best use. Like, sometimes I'm just learning a lesson from that item. I agree with that. And I, I think it would be a mistake to talk about stuff only in the context of stuff is bad, we should get rid of it. Right. There are some really wonderful things in our lives, and that's okay. Yep. And something that I'm learning from this idea of not shopping for a year, which, I mean, it's been, what, eight days, so I don't feel affected by that yet. But having that question in my mind, how am I going to get through a year without shopping, is making me appreciate the stuff I have a lot more. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of looking around my house thinking, what if I moved this pillow from this room to that one? Mm-hmm. What if we used this piece of furniture here instead of there? What if I wore this with that instead of the way I've always worn it? And I like appreciating my stuff, too. I, oh, and my God. Realizing that, can be, that I don't need a lot more. but That can be part 15 through 20 of our series because that as a resource Sherpa – Surprising to no one, that is like my absolute favorite activity in the entire world. Repurposing or yes. reframing. Yeah. Yes. I love it so much. But see, that I have to be careful because it can drift into, I have to keep it because I might use it someday. And that's different. Well, look, if you think this is all really woo-woo, think about the manufacturing sector. So are you familiar with 5S methodology, Sarah? No. Okay, 5S is a Japanese management system that has become pretty widespread in the United States. And the idea is that you 
want to work in a clean place, that your brain works better when mm-hmm. you work in an organized place, that everybody is safer when everything has a place and you know what you have. It's like mise en place, like with the shifts. It's like mise en place, yes. And so 5S has um, five phases. Let's see. It's sort, set in order, shine, standardize, and sustain. Those are the English words. It, It started with Japanese words. It's a really interesting way of looking at your workspace. But it's not a new or hippy dippy idea that working in a clean area where you have the things that you need and you don't have things that you don't need, and you could define need in a lot of different ways, right? But you want to you wanna remove things that are distracting and that are obstacles to you, whether that's in terms of efficiency or emotionally. And then you keep it that way. That's really good age-old advice that has manifested itself in lots of forms way before Marie. Well, and I think this whole system that she sets up, sort of like that one with the sustain. So when the the book came out, the first book, it was, she gives you the order. So it's like clothes, shoes, books and CDs, makeup maybe. But then she says kimono, which is like the miscellany. Okay, I don't know about y'all, but that category includes like a the rest of my house. Like there's a whole lot of stuff in that category. So I would always freeze up at that category because she's really big on like going about it in a certain order, which I think is brilliant because you get better at it. Like I've gotten, I've done the the clothing part of that process, which technically, yes, I understand that she says you do it once, you never do it again. But I like, I've done that so many times. It's, and I think this is what she means. Like you just start to do it inherently as you go along. Like you start to realize like this item has served its purpose. You don't have to pull everything out of your closet to let it go. Like I'm super good at the clothing part now. I don't hold on to clothes. I understand when I've outgrown something. I understand when I'm always picking one thing over the other and to let the other one go. Like I've gotten really good at that. But Well, I think your capacity changes for those things over time. Yeah. Right. You're, like your first time purging, you're probably not going to be able to like – purge everything that will ultimately be purged. Right. So, but the the brilliance of her, like the march through that is you do it with easy stuff like clothes. I don't know. Some, everybody doesn't think clothes are easy, but by the end you're doing like hard things like sentimental items. So in the second book, she did this really great illustrated guide in which she breaks kimono down into all the categories. So she does like electric cords and then you go to your kitchen and you do all these things. And that's what I'm trying to work through this year is to get through the entire kimono category and I'm really excited about that and I have it broken up by weeks and I will share that in our Instagram feed but I that's the part I'm really excited about is to go further and to do that with everything now saying that I have done this with children I have done it with a few like when I did it the first time I sat down with my boys and they used to have t-shirt a t-shirt drawer with like 50 t-shirts in it because it's not because I'm a shopaholic I get hand-me-down so there's just a lot there and because I have three kids I think well I should keep everything that's handed down because who knows what they'll destroy and it's got to get through through kids but the truth is like they dress themselves they pick what they want to wear and there are some shirts that they just don't like and kids inherently you can also in the same way that we teach them to become attached to items they also are pretty good at the conry process because they're pretty emotional creatures and so we literally sat down I think we did this with books we did it with toys and we did it with their clothes and the clothes worked particularly well where they, I would just like hold up a shirt and I like, even Amos was really little, probably four at the time. And I would say, just tell me if you like the shirt or how I described it. 
Does this shirt make you happy? That's what I would say. Does this shirt make you happy? And he didn't have to think about it. Griffin was further along. Like he's he hasn't he he's already started to form that sort of attachment, but he's gotten better at it since we've been doing this process. I would just say, does this shirt make you happy? And he'd be like, no. Like they get it, and we did it. And we worked through their clothes, and what I did is just pack the shirts away in case that shirt makes Felix happy. But it really helped, and I think they learned that process better. And I think if you that becomes sort of the language of your house, like there's nothing wrong with with items making you happy, but you sort of have to. It's a relationship you almost have to engage in with the items in your house. They produce energy, you give them energy, and so this give and take um, has to be something you maintain, like other relationships in your life. I like that. I think that's really good advice, and I think again that probably our ability to do that as adults who've really ingrained attachment Mm. is going to be reshaped and is going to evolve because I've made a couple of passes through several areas of my house now. And I realize each time I go through, it's easier Yeah, and and I see it faster and I feel it more deeply. And I have, I have had the experience of not missing things I've gotten rid of. Oh, but I've also had the experience of missing things I gotten rid of that's really hard like my dear friend Elizabeth was talking about she got skinny jeans in Paris in college and like she brought them back and was like nobody's ever gonna wear skinny jeans here again and she got rid of them isn't that sad that makes me so sad for her yeah I'm sorry about that but I I I rarely have that experience like most of the time when I get something out I never go back and say I wish I had that back it's very rare like I've just the very first con repurge, I think I was a little, um, I know this is going to come as a surprise to you. I was a little zealous um, <laughs> in my first conversion to Conmary. And there are things I look back on, I'm like, you should have pumped the brakes a little bit. But again, that's just part of the learning curve. That's fine. It's worth it. It's 10 times worth it. And I will say this as well. So the other woo-woo part of this book is she talks about, like, when you get rid of this stuff, like, she talks about she's had people vomit. She's had people, like... <laughs> change careers, leave relationships. And I totally understand that and agree with that because the very first time I did this big purge is when I basically decided to run for office and start this podcast. So I don't think it's an accident that I freed my house, which was I can't wait to see what happens now that I'm in a bigger house because I once I freed the space in that smaller house I used to live in, I found more room in my life for things. Because the thing about it is, is even if you're neat and the stuff is not like you're not a hoarder and it's not like flowing over the countertops, I swear to you guys, like it has energy even when it's like deep in the back of a closet. There is something really impactful about having empty spaces and room to grow within your house, within your drawers, within your closet. Because even when you, I don't know if you're like me, but like even when I was like walking around my house and everything was quote unquote picked up, I, it was like that mental chatter of like, I knew that closet needed to be dealt with. And I knew there was this pile of stuff at the back of the boys' closet that I needed to deal with. And it was stressful. Like I felt it all the time. You know what I mean? And even if it was like – it was like having a low-grade fever, stuff fever all the time. And it really – it weighed on me and it drug me down. And when I freed myself of that first purge, I do feel like I freed up energy in my life for other things. I really do. Well, I agree with that. I agree with the most woo-woo interpretation of that. Less woo-woo, though, I would say 
I think that there is a metaphor, a very powerful metaphor in the level of control that you're able to exercise over your stuff Mm. and that that can teach you that you're able to exercise that same kind of control over more esoteric things like your time and your relationships and the thoughts that you think. The kind of discussion that we were having at the beginning about I always say this thing to myself that's really ugly. I think once you start exercising more control over your physical environment, you can start to mirror that level of control elsewhere. And I think that's healthy, right? I think that's really good for you. Well, we only have a finite amount of resources, right? And so if you free energy because you're not thinking about your stressful closet, you free up some energy to think about, yeah, some stressful interactions you've had at work or some problems you have with um, reactions to social interactions or whatever, to free up some space and just a little bit of breath to um, work on other areas. I think that makes perfect sense. I love you, Marie. Marie Connell is her actual name. I also think change begets change. Yep. Just like inertia is the most powerful force in the world, I think once you start the ball of change rolling Mm -hmm. in your life and you really embrace that, okay, I've made this room different. Now what am I going to make different next? You know, you kind of get into these patterns in life, right, where you then you change your hair and then maybe you change a relationship or a career or something because you start to see some momentum pick up in being able to assess how things are going for you and what isn't going well, you know, you want to fix it, right? So I do think that what's really important to acknowledge is one of my other favorite gurus, Gretchen Rubin, always talks about, like, you have to know thyself. And she talks about there are some people who are greatly comforted by abundance. They're like abundance people. They like to be surrounded by things, I think that is a thing. And if you know yourself and you know that this brings you um, comfort and confidence, that's one thing. But I don't think there's an it's an accident. Even Gretchen Rubin, I think, has added sort of Dr. Clutter to one of her sort of foundations of happiness. It's like sleep, exercise, diet. And then she, I think she has now added sort of like clutter to one of those because – even in a in a if you are a person who enjoys more abundance, and I think look, I'm not a I am not a minimalist. Like my closet, I have a nice big new closet in my house, and I have started to cover the walls around the door with as like a bulletin board, like my little plaque from when I was valedictorian, and my little silhouette from when I was a kid. Like I love like I like there's a, there are places where I like to abundant abundance and to like cover spaces with things that give me joy. Like my house is a very colorful house. So I think there's a space for that. But I, I do think like there's just a beauty, no matter the amount of things, depending on your personality that you like to have around you, of like those things being things you really love. Not things you just have, but things that you really love. Like I always think about people are like really hold everything. I'm like, yeah, like there's, I have this little white tool that's like a box opener like it has like a slicer part and then it has a a toggle you can push down and, and like a blade comes out. And like I got it in a stocking. But it brings me so much joy. I know exactly where it is and my junk door that's been conmaried and boxed up and divided for a long, long time now. And it really does work. And it's so purposeful. It meets its purpose so well. Like is it beautiful? No. 
But there is so much joy in like having this object that meets the exact need, having it in the space you always know it is, like it's there for you. I love that little tool so much. And if I was to hold it in my hand and say, does it bring me joy? Heck yeah, it really does. I just love it so much. And so even if you, it's not about like a beautiful painting that brings you joy. It's just about, it, it can also be joy from like having just the right tool in just the right space and it always meeting your purposes in like a really fulfilling way as well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So in summary, it's just about being intentional, really. Mm. You, don't let, you, you don't let it overtake you. You make sure that you actually want this thing. You put it exactly where you want it to be if you want to have it. You let it go if you don't. And that's it. Yep. I'm really sad that we maybe covered it in two parts instead of 55, but I think we might have. I think we probably have. I am not sad about that because I was getting hives thinking about how I'm going <laughs> to talk about this 55 times. Oh, I just love We could go by each category. There's lots. There's 52. I divided them by the weeks of the year. I'm just saying we could. Clothing, book. You really could almost. That's probably its own podcast. But, like, you could spend – you could have a conversation about shirts and blouses and what you've learned about blouses. And then you could have a conversation about – you definitely could have a conversation about books and, like, DVDs. Electrical cords might be a little boring. But I'm just saying. I'm up for it, anybody. Y'all just let us know. <laughs> I think you could have those conversations. I'm not sure I could. <laughs> I would – I'd be happy to listen. If you start a once-a-week Marie podcast, I will be a devoted listener. Yeah, maybe that's what I should – it'll just be like – it'll be like our Marie minute that I'll just throw up in a feed somewhere and be like, Oh, I okay, like that idea. The, the Marie minute. minute. This is what I did. I think that's good. I, I like that. I love it so much. I love it. So you had something to inspire us on our way um, out today. Yes. Uh, this is a good follow-up on our Golden Globes conversation. So Greta Gerwig, who um, was the screenwriter and I believe director and producer of Lady Bird, which is a very personal telling you can tell of her adolescence growing up in Sacramento and her relationship with her mother. It's a the most beautiful film. Everyone should see it. It's so well done. Um, she wrote a really beautiful article for the New York Times called Greta Gerwig, My Mother, My City. She's a New Yorker now. Um, and it talks about her mother and um, her relationship with her mother and how that plays into her relationship with New York City. And there's this really beautiful um, section of the article I wanted to share. My mom did not believe in having your own playset. She thought it defeated the point of a playground, which was to make new friends and get comfortable with people who weren't your family. In Sacramento, she would walk me down to McKinley Park. It was a couple of miles away, but it had the best playground. I was walking that distance with her by the time I was four. Later, when I told a boyfriend about the walk, he didn't believe me. That's just a story your parents tell you. He thought it was an exaggeration, but I am certain of its truth. My mother had raised me to be a walker, to be on the move. Two miles to the playground at four years old was real. My mom wasn't my playmate, but she was the person who brought me out into the world and taught me that it was not scary. I just love that so much, one, because that's what my mom did. Like, she definitely did not play with me. The idea that she would, like, entertain me was so foreign. And it's also my approach to mothering. I just thought that was such a beautiful way to phrase it. Like, she wasn't my playmate. She was the person who brought me out into the world and taught me it was not scary. Oh, love it. 
I love it too. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We'll be on Fancy Politics on Friday and back here next Wednesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.